Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. This Hangout Air is live. Nice. Exciting. It is exciting. Um, would you like to, to do our intro here, Matt? <laughs> I'd love to if I could just find the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I put a, a fun title in there today. I noticed There's that. A fun title already? Uh-huh. Episode 67, Nonprofit Nepotism. <laughs> I like it. Does this still count as nepotism? <laughs> There's no like, gain involved? Um, well, actually, we, there is some gain involved. Uh, this week, we're attempting to woo a new type of audience by bringing on the handsome face of a very special guest who we'll get to in a minute. But before we do, Matt would like to share some news with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, would I? Would I have uh, to start? Um, it's Christmas week, so it's... It it's uh, Little Boxing Day, I go whatever the day after Boxing Day is called. Um, and I, like I was just saying to Graham and Jack, I uh, was just watching the Doctor Who Christmas special. Turned out to be a to be continued, or as uh, my son Milo calls it, a coat hanger. <laughs> <laughs> so I finished on a coat hanger, and um, we will have to wait until I don't know when, because we're just depending on iTunes for these things to come out. So. Oh I, my goodness! After our fiasco here with iTunes, I refuse to support them. What? What do you mean? What fiasco? Are you kidding? The RSS thing? Oh, I'm oh, you that. just oh, that's right. You just let your editors handle it. Yeah, I thought our people just took care of that. <laughs> <laughs> it they works do. now, right? <laughs> they do. That's what we. Yes, it does yeah. work now. So our people sorted it. So yay yeah. them! Well yeah. done, you. Well done, you. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I'm delinquent. What can I say? Well, I'll tell you about our one news bullet, our one news bullet point, which is, uh, so I, I wrote this a week ago, and I'm reading it, and it's a very strange wording. I said, drop a surprise bomb on your sweetie with a lovely post-holiday just because gift of nerdism. Because as you'll recall, last show, we announced our, Matt re-announced his geoscience gift list, and I announced my data science gift list. The links are in the show notes. Check them out. That's all for news, but I have some stuff that I could talk about. Um, well, you posted an intriguing tweet today that I wanted to ask you about. There's something about yeah. space-time curvature or, I don't know, different measures of manifolds, quantum. Let me, <laughs> <laughs> Let me preface this bullet point by saying if there's anyone who knows of some open source code that I can use to visualize alternative space-time metrics, please send them over to me. So with that, I will say that... That's not a preface. That's a, more of a, something you would say at the end of an explanation. No, 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 no. Well, our, lunars, our listeners tune out after 30 seconds, so I've got a limited window to get at them. You know, action, man. Good point. Um, the point of the story is I wanted to visualize a... Sometimes, you know, if you go on Wiki, Wikipedia, you can see cool... Uh, differential geometry simulations of coffee cups turning into toroids and planes turning into spheres and things. Okay, which Wikipedia pages are these? <laughs> oh, I don't know. This is if this episode was on Wikipedia, it would say reference not defined. And <laughs> this, this particular section. I don't know. Look up topology or like differential geometry or something. All right. I'm not. I'm not going to do it right now. Anyway, um, so I basically wanted to build one of these things, but I wanted to do it in a way which was prettier than anything I had sitting around. And I didn't feel like writing it. Uh, so again, the call for open source code. Now, I did do something after I put that tweet up. I basically just faked it and um, just rendered the geometries uh, manually. Um, but it's not nearly as cool. So OK. But so last time we were talking about um, graphs and doing 
convolutions on graphs. Is this related to that, or is this some crazy side project? Because this sounds unrelated. Indeed, it is related to the convolutional kernels on non-Euclidean spaces. Okay. And it is only related insofar as I'm making a presentation and I wanted a cool slide to show. Instead of just showing like the derivation of a metric on a spheroid geometry, mm -hmm. which is which puts uh, you're already I was going to say it puts people asleep, but I think you're actually asleep now after I said that. Are you sleeping? Oh, have I frozen with my eyes closed? No. <laughs> you're good. Anyway, uh, I wanted to put a picture up there, and so I will. Yeah, cool. Um, that reminds me, I wanted to mention uh, I can't remember what it's called. Google just open sourced like two, three weeks ago, uh, a new thing to type with one hand with a pen in it. Wait a second. Uh, open sourced a new library for spherical geometries. Oh, oh yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah. I did. So they kind of were touting it as potentially the sort of library you might need to build a truly spherical GIS to sort of do maps and that kind of thing in a spherical space rather than in a projection or right. a, a I don't really, to be honest, know how most GISs handle what is notionally spherical coordinates like lats longs because they, they obviously are working in a flat space. So I assume they're doing some sort of transform internally. Um, so this is allegedly, I think, the first library to to use a truly spherical space so that you could do um, transforms and mapping. Which not is on an absolutely oblate. shocking to me that that's not a thing already. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I immediately thought, as a friend of mine does a lot of um, plate tectonic reconstructions, and you know, do, doing that with um, the GDAL libraries, which I guess are in this quote-unquote old paradigm of uh, not truly spherical coordinate spaces. I don't really know, but um, that was that was what they made the announcement sound like. So anyway, I thought it was worth mentioning because people out there might be looking around for ways to do these sort of uh, transformations. There is a Python interface for it as well. I believe it's the the core library is in C, um, but there there, is, there are Python bindings for most of it apparently. This is sort of surprising to me because. Uh, Sailors have been working in spherical space for hundreds of years for doing their navigation. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I guess there's lots of approximations that sailors make. I don't know. Um, well, indeed, uh, many people have been working in spherical and other coordinate systems for hundreds of years. When was, when was um, the first non-Euclidean geometry used? I don't know. It must have been in the 1700s. That's that's another undefined reference. <laughs> yeah. Hey, like they still fundamentally with with well, maybe they were plotting on a globe at some point, but they were still fundamentally drawing a map with with you know linear spaces on the axes and then plotting their lats longs on there. Well, oh, I don't mean I don't mean applications. I mean the purest of language. Okay. You know what that you know what that is, don't you? No, oh maths. Oh, I was going to say the language of love. Ah, love. <laughs> and then there's math, too. <laughs> hey, look, uh, we have a very special guest on the show today, as I mentioned, and I'm going to introduce him because he's my dad. Hey, Graham, how you doing? Good. Hey, this is Jack Gansel. He is, you've probably already heard of him if you are into computers and stuff. Um, he is a embedded systems dude. He knows everything about computers since computers were the size of buildings. Um, and uh, he's, we put LinkedIn, links in the show notes to his website or his consulting company, some of his publications, and the course that he teaches professionally one-on-one uh, -on -one with companies. So, Jack, Dad, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I'm uh, looking forward to the next hour. So how does it feel to be the first family member guest on Undersampled Radio? Well, I don't think I could ever live up to some of your other guests, like Ethan Rosenthal. I mean, come on. And he's as close to family as anyone would be. <laughs> that is true. He's been on the show a couple of times, and we've had a good time with him. Um, so give us, 
give us the brief history of the Ganzel Empire. How did you how did you get into computers <laughs> in the first place? Well, I was a classic nerd as a kid and uh, very very interested in electronics and had a little lab in the basement where I ran all my experiments and I, I knew I wanted to be an engineer, so I, I went to uh, the University of Maryland, and while I was there, I was working as an electronics technician during the Apollo program, and uh, we were working on Apollo ground support equipment. But then the microprocessor happened, and where I was working, nobody knew anything about computers, but we, know, we knew that we needed to put microprocessors in our products. And uh, I knew computers, so they prom promoted me to be an engineer. And um, it's been 45 shocking years since then. Um, and I'm still fascinated with it. It's a great field. It uh, changes constantly. It's really incredible. So what's, what's your specialty? What's your favorite thing over all those years that you've, that you've worked on that you continue to work on? Oh, well, there's been so many interesting projects. There was one project where we used uh, near-infrared light to analyze uh, cow poop which is always a serious problem. The farmers wanted to know how much protein was in the cow poop to see if they could feed it back to the cows and save on feed. God, I hope the answer was no. <laughs> uh, we did drop a gallon bottle of ether on the floor, and my memory after that of the project is very vague. <laughs> but uh, I know we've worked. I've worked on uh, tons of projects. I, with Ethan Rosenthal's dad and I designed the White House security system back in the early 80s when Reagan was in. And I spent two years in the basement of the White House actually getting that all working and stuff. Um, Is this probably, still there? Oh, I doubt it. <laughs> Technology changes too fast. It's probably in a big scrap heap somewhere, like all, all technology. This is government, remember? That's true. And it was the Secret Service. <laughs> Some of the stupidest people I've ever dealt with in my life. Oh my God, we're gonna have to edit this out before the FBI comes knocking on our door. It's a secret. <laughs> you keep the secret, right? Because <laughs> yeah, well, can't say too much more. <laughs> hey, I wanted to. Um, I I thought I wrote this question in the notes, but I guess I forgot to. So you've been blogging before blogging was blogging. Uh, it's been how many years? How many years have you been writing articles for embedded systems and electronics journals? About twenty-nine years, I think. And uh, originally, of course, it was all print. There was no web to speak of. But um, that also that, that all migrated to the web. And uh, actually, a year ago, I gave up my writing gig for the magazines. I was writing a weekly uh, column, and uh, I just decided, getting older, I want to kick back a little bit. So I'm still writing my newsletter that goes twice a month. Um, and the writing's fun. It's just having a deadline of every week was getting kind of old after all those almost 30 years of doing it. But yeah, the you know, I can remember that back in the early 90s, a friend came over to my office with his laptop, which of course those were big back then. And he said, you have got to see this. And uh, he showed me the World Wide Web. And I had never seen it before. It was only it had only been out for like a year. And so I immediately started one of Maryland's first ISPs. And uh, we had uh, all these servers and I don't know how many hundreds of modems and all kinds of stuff. And so, yeah, the web is, was truly revolutionary. It's hard to imagine what life was like before we could do things like this. Yeah, especially when your dad owned an ISP when you were a child. Yes. <laughs> Graham's always been surrounded by a lot of technology. <laughs> it's true. So how... So Matt Matt has a blog um, on agilescientific.com, which is widely followed. And I guess my question to you is, how do you how do you keep up with your readers? I mean, you have you how much, do you know what your readership is? Do you have any idea of what your audience is like? I've got about uh, twenty seven thousand direct sub subscribers, and I don't know how many pass alongs. Well, um, you know, I, I get a ton of email, but that's cool. I really enjoy the uh, dialogue with the people. And everyone is uniformly polite. I mean, it's, it's not like the, so many corners of the web where you really don't want to read the comments and things. That people can be so ugly. Yeah, that's Matt's blog. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my audience are engineers. And for some reason, they tend to be really polite and thoughtful. And I learn tons from them. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. So is it mo it's, it's mostly correspondence through email then? Yeah, mostly. You know, and you know me. I travel uh, a lot constantly. 
So I'm, you know, one-on-one -on -one with people all over the world all the time. Although I'm trying to slow that down a little bit. It's getting, you know, it gets a little old being on an airplane all the time. Yes, indeed. What's all that junk behind you? Junk? Don't look junk. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the magic that we use to make this, the embedded world work. It's the soul scopes, uh, power supplies, a nice spectrum analyzer here. Oh, I love that bad boy. Um, <laughs> you know, waveform generators, stuff like that. People send me, manufacturers send me their test equipment for me to, to re review and look at and comment on. And oftentimes they let me keep it. So I generally uh, run contests in my newsletter, typically once a month, where I'll give away uh, the latest piece of test equipment. So that's this one's going to be given away in uh, uh, January. It's a nice little 200 megahertz scope. Cool. We need to start giving stuff away on Understandable Radio, Matt. That's very cool. I What'd forget that. I, want that. I want that scope. How many, <laughs> how many pairs of sneakers you got, man? <laughs> you lightly used. <laughs> yeah. um, Matt, do you want to? Since you didn't have any news, do you want to lead the way on this interrogation? Uh oh. Well, I just yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought up uh, Jack's office there because it does look intriguingly interesting. <laughs> I can just imagine you tinkering away uh, on things down there. We, um, your name actually originally came up as someone that we should have on the show because we were wittering on about um, FPGAs without actually knowing anything at all about them and um, <laughs> like wait, even... wait 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 you got to slow ball it into the FPGA question <laughs> that, 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 I'm, I'm just I want to get there because I don't know where that's gonna lead <laughs> I see okay okay go carry on <laughs> All my carefully prepared notes. <laughs> well, we can we can jump around. It's cool. Yeah. Um, but I'm but I'm I'm interested in just uh, what like I think a, a lot of people who maybe just think about computers and um, electronics these days maybe don't appreciate that behind the scenes you still need oscilloscopes and there are people with wires and gear doing stuff that doesn't necessarily involve a keyboard and a screen. Um, and, and I guess I'm um, not knowing anything at all about the whole hardware side of things. Um, I'm curious about, um, you know, so I, I guess the one, the one thing that all computery people do know about when it comes to hardware is Moore's Law. And the thing you keep hearing is that Moore's Law is slowed down. And or, or or maybe doesn't apply anymore, and so it seems a bit kind of noughties, I guess, like up, maybe up to two thousand ten. And since then, it's all been software, software defined storage, software defined hardware, software defined computers, you know, servers. Um, and a lot of people now talk about neural networks as essentially software designed software. <laughs> um, so it, you know, what's as a hardware person? Is, I don't know if it's fair to call you that, but that's how that's how I'm characterizing you in my head for now. So feel free to correct me. Um, it, are are things like FPGAs as exciting as the sort of rumblings I hear? Um, and it, it is it has some. Do you feel like the spotlight has shifted away from hardware? onto sort of software stuff recently and, and are FPGAs part of that spotlight swinging back towards hardware again? Sorry, that was a very <laughs> ragged question, but I'm just hoping you can make some sense of it. Actually, Matt, it's a great question and you've actually opened up a whole ocean of stuff that we could talk about there. I mean, uh, start off, yeah, yeah, I'm a hardware person, but I'm also a software person. I do both and that's what the embedded industry is. Um, that's mm. sort of the intersection of uh, hardware and software. Um, when you talk about maybe software being thought of as being slightly deprecated, and I, I have a glass of wine too, so you're going to imbibe. You know, the software can't run without the hardware. The hardware is hugely important, and um, it's continuing to evolve. I mean, it's, it is an exciting field to be in today. Um, you know, you mentioned Moore's Law and Moore's Law ending. Well, Moore's Law hasn't really ended yet. 
Moore's law is kind of a funny thing. People think of it as a law, but it's, it's really two things. It's uh, sort of an observation that the number of transistors you can put on a uh, chip double uh, every two years. But it's also an aspiration. Uh, the people who actually designed these microprocessors, there's a semiconductor trade association, and they set goals for where they want to be uh, for typically out 10 to 12 years at a time. And the goal is every two years to shrink the size of a transistor by a factor of 0.7. Because since an IC is a 2D array, 0.7 times 0.7 is roughly 0.5, which means you can double the number of transistors on that, on that integrated circuit. Today, we're at, um, depending upon how you count, somewhere around 14 nanometers. And what that means is the smallest uh, feature size, which, which is a portion of a transistor, is 14 nanometers long. And if you think about this, <laughs> a silicon atom is a quarter nanometer in diameter. Yeah. I mean, we're getting, we're getting down there. We're going to be at probably next year, maybe the year after, 10 nanometers. And uh, that's going to be OK. OK, it's going to work fine. The next step is 7 nanometers. People are starting to panic about that. But uh, there are some things they may be able to use. You know, when you, when you build an IC, you use a, a photographic process. It's sort of like developing a negative. You project light through a mask that goes onto a photoresist that's on the silicon chip itself. And the light that they use today is ultraviolet. It's 100, 193 nanometer wavelength. So that's far, far away past the, uh, the you know, violet. You can't see it. And if you think about it, you're building 14 nanometer features with 193 nanometer light. That's, mm. that is just remarkable. And they have to use interference, multiple patterning, all kinds of things in order to do that. But that's going to run out of steam, probably around 7 nanometers. And so we're going to switch to x-rays. And uh, the x-rays will be at 13.7 nanometers. Very, very high energy. And the problem is that that much energy eats up everything. I mean, you can't yeah, you can't uh, project it through a lens because the lens absorbs it. So you have to use first surface mirrors, but it burns up the first surface mirrors. And on top of that, we don't know how to make x-rays at that wavelength with enough power to economically produce chips. Uh, but a lot's happening, and I have no doubt that, that's, that these problems will get uh, resolved. So that's pretty cool. That's exciting stuff. In terms of FPGAs and, and whatnot, uh, FPGAs are old. They're about 30 years old. And um, so they've been around a long time. But what's happening is that uh, it used to be if you wanted to mass produce something, you'd produce a custom IC. It was called an ASIC for application-specific IC. And uh, the problem is that at these small geometries, like a 14-nanometer ASIC, it's going to cost you in engineering about half a billion dollars. And uh, how many how big how many markets are big enough to absorb that? You know, cell phones, yeah. So you know. Apple produces their A series processors. They're all custom made, but they're making you know, zillions of, of uh, uh, parts. So FPGAs to kind of bleed into that. And FPGA is sort of like a silk software hardware. So you have a you buy this chip, and there's various functionality in the chip, but you actually load into the chip when you turn the chip on. You load into it. A design that tells how to connect all these logical blocks on the chip. So what that means is that you can you can do a couple of cool things. Number one, you can design a chip that will do anything, and even you know working out of a, you know a house here for a handful of dollars, you can actually produce a custom what is effectively a custom chip because this hardware design is loaded with power on time. Um, and the FPGAs, if you're willing to spend enough money, can be really complicated. I mean, uh, I saw one FPGA, I think that it sells for $68,000 a chip. Um, yeah. I mean, you can buy them some smaller ones for as little as a dollar or two. But I mean, you, you can buy these hideously complex parts. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> how, do you, how do you redesign hardware using software? Great question. So, you know, uh, how do you design software using software? You design oh, your software. Well, you design your software. <laughs> you no, you compile it. You get your binary. And then um, you load your binary into, perhaps, RAM memory, right? That RAM memory, then, is essentially the instantiation of your software design. 
FPGAs are sort of like that. There's a, it's sort of like memory. Um, I mean, the way it works is, is typically, and different vendors call them different things, but there's typically what they call a configurable logic block, a CLB. And there's anywhere from hundreds to millions of these on an FPGA. And each of those configurable logic blocks has uh, a latch so it can remember something. It has what's called a lookup table, which you can, if it were, say, a three-bit lookup table, you could program in any pattern of eight up to eight different things. So you put in three bits going in and get any results as for any combination of those bits coming out. And so those get connected together. And it turns out that you can build any digital circuit with FPGA. Wait, what do you mean by get connected together? It's, it's actually mostly used RAM memory. And uh, the, the connections are through the RAM memory. So what okay. happens is, yeah, it's, you know, there's... <laughs> so going, it seems like that would be very, very slow because you're going back and forth. It's what's happening is it's relatively slow to load the program on PowerUp, but an FPGA just screams because the way, it, you know, to take a computer, different to differentiate a computer from, from an FPGA, the way a computer works is it has to load a, an instruction from memory, do whatever that instruction says, put the result somewhere. And those are all very slow processes. And these instructions are typically really stupid. There'd be things like, load this memory location into this register. I mean, really stupid stuff. So you have to execute thousands of them to do anything useful. FPGA, once the, thing, the program's loaded, it just happens almost instantly. I mean, literally uh, nanoseconds is all it takes to do something very complex. So give you an example application. I've got a buddy in California who builds systems for a radio astronomy place, and he uses hundreds of the latest, latest generation FPGAs because they're sucking in terabytes per second of data. And no computer can ever keep up with that, but they just throw it through the FPGAs. And, and admittedly, his designs are extremely complex, but um, it just happens more or less instantly through the uh, FPGA. So you can do computation really fast. Hmm. Um, now, one interesting thing you could put on an FPGA, you could program an FPGA, or more interestingly, a portion of an FPGA to be a processor. Right, so you can with them because you can build do any logic function that you can do in digital logic can be on an FPGA, so you can actually instantiate a microprocessor into the FPGA, and then you have all this really fast logic left over that you can do cool things with, uh, to speed up things that are, tend to be very slow with with computers, or on some some FPGAs actually quite a few today, they have what's called a, unfortunately, it's called a hard core. Don't Google it. Trust me, you're not going to get the results you expect. But what it is is a a microprocessor built like a normal microprocessor is as part of the FPGA, and it's a more efficient way of doing it than using FPGA logic blocks to do it. So now you get to get combine all kinds of interesting things. Um, and one thing people are doing a lot of, matter of fact, I've got some stuff around here that does that. One thing that you can do is reconfigure the FPGA in real time. So the hardware design can change oh. in real time. It's pretty wild when you think about it. So the hardware design could be sort of adaptive or even change with an algorithm as it needs to. You could sort of repurpose different parts of the chip as needed. Yes, yeah, so what would have to happen is the FPGA isn't smart enough to reconfigure itself. So you, the FPGA is, is part of a logic board <laughs> And there's another computer that loads the binary codes, the design into it. Now, I'll, I'll give, give you an example. Um, I, I have a bunch of logic analyzers here. And what they are, are they're, they're sort of like oscilloscopes for digital logic. They don't show you anything about the shape of the waveform, but they'll tell you if it's a 1 or a 0. And they're very wide, so you might have 64 inputs coming in all the time. And you can display that on your, on your PC and, and acquire all this data. One of the things you want to do with a logic analyzer and with an oscilloscope is what's called trigger. So when a certain pattern comes in, it suddenly starts acquiring data like crazy. Uh, the way a lot of these work today is an FPGA is used to hold that pattern. And that pattern is defined by the user. The user might say, OK, give me uh, start acquiring data when this event happens. He types in an event, 
The software redesigns the FPGA, loads it, and bam, it, it captures it. It's very yeah. cool stuff. Very cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think I'm like I think that the connection that they've popped up recently uh, with um, is, uh, is is with neural networks and the idea that you could sort of implement a neural network in an FPGA and therefore, I guess, make the inference passes through the network extremely fast or at least manifested on a chip and I don't know. Therefore, well, I guess it's not, you wouldn't manufacture the chip that way because then it's not an FPGA anymore. But so what do you, do you know much about the connection there with, um, with machine learning and how people might want to use FPGAs in that connection? Yeah, I think I sent Graham a, a link recently to this uh, Green Mountain com com Computing Company that's doing that. And if you think about it, to do a neural network in a computer is really it's a horrible thing. I mean, one of the reasons the brain works so well, I mean, the brain, a neuron is really a, about the slowest computing element you can think of. I mean, it takes milliseconds for a neuron to do anything. But there's tr you know trillions or billions, hundreds of billions of them all operating in parallel. A computer is the worst possible solution because for every inference, for every, just to process one connection from just one point A to one point B, you have to execute all these instructions. But you want a neural network to be very wide and very deep. Okay, so that means it has to do a ton of calculations. Uh, an FPGA can do that effectively instantly because it's just, you feed it into the hardware. The hardware is configured to do, because you've written the, you've designed the hardware in the FPGA to do this. The FPGA can take all these inputs and then do any kind of logic or math you want on it more or less instantaneously. I mean, you know, uh, it might be nanoseconds or maybe it, if you have a deep network, microseconds, but still very fast and pop out a result. And so I've been kind of egging grandma on about FPGAs for a while. And I don't mean to because it's getting in a whole different realm of, of difficulty, but uh, in my opinion, an FPGA is a, a correct solution to a lot of the neural network stuff that's going on. Hmm. Interesting. A neural network forward direction is just matrix multiplication many times. That seems like the type of thing that would be optimal for an FPGA. And remember, matrix multiplication in a computer, you have to tediously multiply each element, whereas an FPGA could do it all at once. Right. So is that what these uh, TPUs are, are exploiting a similar kind of paradigm? I, do, do you know much about these tensor processing units that Google is uh, touting right now? I, I really don't know much. I've seen um, some of the hype, but I don't know much about them. Um, I, my sense is that they are a, a sort of a custom design chip, probably. Uh, and, and FPGA uses a lot of logic. If you want to do something complicated, you have to use a big FPGA. And if you have a hard design, they're not changing, then it's more efficient to actually build right. that design. And I suspect that that's what they're doing. Right. Yeah. yeah. The point about the FPGA is that you can change it if you don't need to or want to change it. Two, two points. You, you can change it, but also it's a really cheap way to come out with something that's really fast and custom. You don't have to design a chip. You just, <laughs> you just buy the FPGA chip. And uh, then they have software, kind of like using a compiler, it, but there are more steps and it's more complicated. But it's a similar sort of thing. You design, most of the time we don't use schematics for this kind of stuff. We use uh, languages. They're called hardware description languages. So it's things like Verilog, VHDL. And if you look at the stuff, it looks a lot like code. The thing that's really, really weird is it's all, to a first approximation, there are exceptions. It's all executing at the same time. I see. With, with software, you execute a statement, then the next statement, then the next statement. So, is it? Would it be fair? Sorry, I'm just sort of struggling towards dim comprehension here. But <laughs> it's weird stuff. <laughs> would it be fair to say that you know, when like I, you know, I'm a Python programmer, so Python's sort of famously non-optimal, if you like, when it comes to sort of speed and so on. But um, some people are starting to do like just-in-time compiling when they want to speed things up, or they'll write sections of their Python program in C when they want it to be faster. But fundamentally, even when you've managed to compile pieces of it, and in a sort of 
essentially a specialized piece of machine code, you're still running on a general purpose chip. You're still just running on a CPU that was designed to do all sorts of things. Is, is running on an FPGA a bit like saying, no, no, I'm going to compile it onto a specific hardware design. I'm sort of taking the whatever the opposite of abstraction is, I'm like taking the specificate the specificity down all the way to the chip rather than just taking it down as far as the compiled machine code. So that that's exactly the case. You you okay. come up with your hardware design in one of these languages, go through the compilation processes, uh, and then when that is loaded into the chip, that binary gets loaded into the FPGA, it totally redesigns the hardware. So it is unique. There's nothing similar. Whereas a CPU is a general purpose device uh, designed to do pretty much anything. And that's one of the reasons it's so fast. Well, so then what about GPU? It seems like if we had an FPGA we designed specifically for one neural network or whatever, one matrix multiplication operation, you would get a similar speed up with a GPU because you're just pushing all of those pixels or voxels or whatever through the GPU at one time. GPU is its own weird beast, of course, but a GPU is basically a uh, microprocessor. Um, even though there's a, they look kind of magical, like they're doing all this stuff real fast. They're fetching instructions from memory, executing instructions, putting the results somewhere. Now, what makes a GPU so so in some cases so fast is that the the uh, logical elements on it, the CPUs, if you will are really dumb. They're, they're not anywhere near as smart as a, a conventional CPU. And because they're really dumb, it doesn't take a whole lot of transistors to design one. So a GPU will have many, many, many of those, and they can all work in parallel. So some of the, like some of the NVIDIA stuff, they've got over 5,000 uh, of these compute elements on, on the device. And not all problems map well to GPUs, but for those that do map really well, instead of having like a single CPU doing one tedious instruction at a time, suddenly you have 5,000 and more or less in parallel doing this stuff. The other thing a GPU does, or a GPU does really well is uh, the good ones, the high-end ones, have really wide memory buses, like on the order of uh, 2,000 bits or, or even more. And the, the problem we have today, one of the many problems we have today is that memory is a bottleneck. Memory is a disaster. Memory has just totally brought this whole computing world to its knees. Because if you want to access an instruction with a CPU, you've got to send a series of commands to the memory. Because we use today, everyone's using, or you guys, not so much us in the embedded world, use these synchronous DRAMs, SDRAMs. And they're very smart, they're very cool. But to, if you want to get an, a value from memory, you've got to send all these commands to the uh, SDRAM which processes it and then returns the value to you. And that's relatively slow. So what you want to do is, if you can, do it, you know, send out the command and get as many bits back, a really, really wide word, so that they all come back in and you can handle all that in your CPU or GPU or whatever it might be. And GPUs are really good because they're designed to have um, take lots and lots of bits at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, if you look at a CPU, they're all, they all have cache. Everyone hmm. knows about cache. And the reason is, the SDRAM is so bloody slow. I mean, we're talking tens of nanoseconds. And, uh, and the processor, if you're running a three gigahertz part, it wants a new instruction every third of a nanosecond. And uh, it's, it's just not, doesn't work well. So we use cache, which is very, very fast memory, but it's very, very expensive. So you can only have a relatively small amount of cache um, on, on your CPU. So it's sort of a, it's better than, than trying to go look directly at, at SDRAM, but it's still a long way from where we want to be. This, these questions have only added 30 questions to my list, and we're not going to get through them all. <clears throat> but I want to highlight my own ignorance and by moving back into the very, very basics, which I guess the, the one question I'm thinking of now is, what is the difference between memory and an FPGA? And before you answer, I'll tell you why I'm asking the question, because it seems like memory is a, is a location configurable uh, system. Could, could you not use it to 
combine pieces of information by sitting them next to each other in some way? Uh, it's actually a, a really good question. Memory is vaguely like it because if you, another way of thinking of memory is you can put something in the, the address of the location you want, right? That's, that's the input to the memory. Mm -hmm. And what comes out is the data that happens to be at that address. Mm -hmm. So the, you could program, could, you don't have to use memory to hold instructions. You'd have program just patterns. So when this pattern comes in, this pattern comes out. The problem is with memory, you can only do that once and then you have to reinitiate the whole cycle. With yeah, FPGU, you, you can do all in parallel. Well, what happens with memory is you, you put in one address, you get the data out, the pattern out. Then you do something with that. You put another address in, you get another pattern out. Each of these cycles can take tens of nanoseconds. With an FPGA, it's sort of like memory. You can put patterns in, but then before returning anything, it does some computations on it, something complicated, and then puts the result to another part of the FPGA, which can do the same thing, all in on the order of one or two clock cycles. I mean, we're talking, you know, fractions, you know, nanoseconds. <laughs> okay. Okay. I can I can dig that answer. So so that that makes that makes it almost sound a bit like MapReduce. Uh, you're sort of shipping something off. You're shipping the. You could. You could. No, hang on. Where's the data? <laughs> it, it, what do you mean in the FPGA? Yeah. It almost feels like you could distribute something across many of those or inside even one FPGA. Yeah. Those are tr true statements. And the data is the input to the FPGA. So you're going to provide some uh, input to the, F to the neural network, to the FPGA. And then yes. all this magic is going to happen in the, in the hardware. And a result will be produced of one sort or another. And I don't want to make it sound too easy because a, a big neural network might require a bunch of FPGAs. Um, when you talk about MapReduce, that's a little bit different because MapReduce has to go out and, and you know suck in the entire web basically and build these relationships, and that's a very uh, sort of a linear process. And it, yeah. I think I've read that Google has been using FPGAs to accelerate parts of that. Uh, but I can't. I don't know enough about MapReduce to really say a whole lot intelligent. So let me let's step back into the world of processing for a second and talk about how this would be applied. Um, I would, actually, I was too distracted by your interesting answers to look this up while we were talking. I was going to see how much it costs. You can rent FPGA instances now on at least AWS. I think you can get Google uh, Cloud Cloud Engine uh, instances as well. So it's very easy to do this if. It's it's very easy to get access to these to these systems. So here's another sort of my conceptual understanding coming up to speed questions. So in a GPU, I think about layers in a network, or or more fundamentally, uh, one tensor worth of information in a GPU going through a matrix multiplication at one time. So let's say you have 5,000 cores. You're interested in, let's say, like in a dot product multiplication, you're interested in adding two matrices or arrays. You, you, you know, if you have 2,000 elements in the array, you're using, theoretically, you could be using 2,000 of the cores to stack, to add those arrays together. So in the FPGA, it sounds like you can design the hardware to do that optimally so let's right. how, how big i guess is an fpga can you do two thousand elements worth of stuff at one time uh how deep is your pocket <laughs> you, you can get fpgas with uh, millions of these uh configurable logic logic blocks on them and with millions you can do a ton of calculations or for a, a buck or two you can get one one with hundreds which isn't going to help you much with uh, neural networks Mm, yeah. Um, so one logic block can do one element plus one element. Well, uh, one logic block can do a, a lookup, and uh, that could be depends on the vendor how many bits that lookup table is going to be. But is it going to be at least three, maybe as many as seven? Um, and it can also latch the results, so it can store whatever uh, happened. 
Oh no. Just when I thought I had the memory thing sorted out. Wait. Yeah, this is tough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Think, think about it a different way. What, what's a computer comprised of? Very simple logic gates, AND gates, OR gates, things like that. And what we call latches, something that can store a bit. RAM is basically a bunch of latches, a whole bunch of latches. Turns out you can build a completely functioning computer that will do anything using nothing more than a NOR gate, an OR gate that's inverted. With a NOR gate, you can build multipliers, you can build latches, you can build all kinds of stuff. But the computer is built out of these very simple elements, just gobs and gobs of them tied together. And uh, the FPGA is sort of similar. The CLBs are relatively simple, but you've got an ocean full of them, so you can do a whole pile of stuff. Maybe, you know, one way of looking at it, the fundamental observation about computing is that you can replace all this hardware with memory. Mm. We, I, we could go out today, not today, it would take a billion years, but we could design in hardware uh, Microsoft Excel. It'd be the size of the Empire State Building probably, just that with hardware, with no program at all. Um, but the observation is that you can replace hardware with memory. It's really what defines, defines computing. Mm. Um, so it's just a matter of using memory to store instructions and data, and slowly, computers are, for all their wonderfulness, they are intrinsically kind of slow. Uh, you can actually use that data and those instructions to, to make something happen. This reminds me of, I don't know if you've seen any of the, I think we might have talked about them ages ago, Graham, on, on the show before, but the crazy videos of people building functioning computers in Minecraft. Yes. <laughs> using... Uh, there's there's some compound in there or material called red sand, I think, which <laughs> some property that you can exploit essentially to to essentially build these. I think are computers, uh, or they are, they do they can do calculations, but the, but I think it's really just memory, and they are gigantic, multi massive massive buildings basically. I don't know anything about Minecraft, which is why it doesn't sound like I know what I'm talking about, which is completely true. But um, essentially, it's a bit like an Empire State Building full of this red sand stuff. And um, then you can go and operate some levers or whatever to you know, add two numbers together. Um, but yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, while, while you were um, talking about that, I was just looking at where um, FPGAs and things are in the cloud stuff, as Graham mentioned it. And it seems like a lot people are, uh, many of the cloud companies, are, have decided to try and exploit FPGAs rather than going through Google's route of actually building these or exploiting TPU-like things. Um, Microsoft, for example, have this project Brainwave uh, where they're building a DNN, so a deep neural network processor that they're calling or have shortened to DPU, a DNN processing unit that's built or synthesized on... Uh, these 14 nanometer Altera FPGAs um, and Baidu are also using FPGAs for deep neural net compute hardware. So seems to be the way things are going for now. Yeah, we always follow the money. Uh, well, a year or two ago, Intel, the world's largest microprocessor vendor, bought Altera. Okay. Tells you what they're thinking. <laughs> okay. interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I mean, I hope that even a top-notch guy like yourself finds it at least a little bit difficult to keep up with all this stuff. <laughs> like, how do you, like, what are your strategies for just, like, staying on top of what's happening in your space? Well, when I'm not traveling, uh, every Monday morning, I spend Monday morning studying, keeping up with what, the, what is new, what's going on. And I have a whole bunch of websites I visit and uh, like I'm fortunate people send me stuff I get all the books for review okay. um, and I think part of it is you have to be passionate about the subject I mean if, if you really think it's cool and if you want to work at it then you know you can keep up I mean not with not with everything I mean you guys are doing uh, what we used to call big iron with these you know thousands of Amazon uh, instances and things I know virtually nothing about that uh, I've had to narrow my focus to the world of embedded systems, yeah. uh, which is fine because that's what I'm interested in. 
But yeah, we were designing with FPGAs in the, um, I think the first project I did was around 1990. So they've been around for a while. Interesting. So, well, I mean, that's, that's a feature though, not a bug, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it absolutely is. It's actually quite mature technology. It's mature, but it changes so rapidly and it improves so quickly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old guy. I'm, I'm old enough to retire and, uh, I decided to put it off till probably till I'm 70 because uh, it's just too interesting. I'm not not ready to hang up the towel. You know? So I've just found uh, the F1 instances on AWS are uh, the cheap. There's a cheap one and a pricey one. The cheap one is a dollar sixty five per hour. That for, for what? I, I'm about to say something, and I, I <laughs> this is another reference undefined. There's it says eight. CPUs, 122 gigs of RAM. I don't, I don't understand what that means. F, maybe eight FPGA individual chips. I, I don't. I, I don't know how they okay. what their model is. Yeah. All right. And so then the the bigger one, which is thirteen dollars twenty cents per hour, is uh, sixty four quote unquote CPUs. Do they give a name, family name of the CP, of the uh, FPGA? They say Xilinx uh, like or Vertex or description, which I'm opening back up now, and it says Xilinx Ultra Scale Plus. Oh yeah, those are big. Those are those are decent FPGAs. Okay, so we are going to pretend that eight CPU description, which is again one dollar sixty-five cents per hour, gives you eight of those Xilinx chips to play with. Okay. So how uh, <laughs> we're totally running out of time, but how <laughs> do I tomorrow uh, <laughs> not write or how do I how do I design an world on FPGAs? <laughs> how do I how do I program or whatever an FPGA? This is why I said uh, earlier that even though I've been egging you on, I'm really not seriously trying to get you into it. It's you you I don't know what uh, Amazon is using, but uh, for Xilinx's work, they have a tool called Vivado, and there's a free version for students and non-commercial stuff. Um, and Vivado basically is a tool suite. So you have to learn Verilog, the language Verilog, which is the uh, hardware description language. You come up with your design in Verilog. You compile it with Vivado. Then you have to do what's called synthesis, which converts basically your compiled design into logic gates. That's part of Avado. They have to do what's called place and route, which actually converts that down to binaries. And then uh, you would upload that to the uh, AWS. Let's uh, let's get Jack on in a year, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I, can't even, I can't even keep up with taking notes on what he's saying fast enough, <laughs> let alone learn all this stuff. Okay. Let me, let me give you an idea of complexity. Okay. I was working on a project last year. It was a uh, interface between a bunch of GPUs and some really high-end CPUs, and it was all done in Verilog. And this part of it was just a memory controller. I mean, a really, really smart memory controller, multiple caches and stuff. It was about 10 million lines of Verilog. Jesus. <laughs> That's the problem. That's the problem. <laughs> OK. so. <laughs> Okay, so assuming the time cost of money, and uh, assuming that my time is worth not zero, is it even worth my time to build a neural network in, on a FPGA? Well, I guess the question I would ask is, can you find a open source yeah. something or a partner with somebody? Or, I mean, this is a classic case. I mean, you're you're a good businessman, where uh, you know hiring people is going to be a whole lot more efficient. Hey, Matt, what's Diego doing these days? <laughs> <laughs> 10 million lines of code. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, I assume that the tool set, I mean, Baidu as well is using these Xilinx chips. Um, you've, got, you've got to hope that the tool set will, like, I don't know, mature or, or broaden enough for people, or at least to have some tools to do things like port your whatever your TensorFlow implementation of uh, neural network into these things with minimal fuss. I assume you're not writing 
you know that I, I really should make the, made that clear. What a lot of folks do in the uh, FPGA business is they acquire IP. There's an awful lot of companies writing IP for FPGAs, and uh, you know what they what people try to do is acquire as much as possible and uh, then integrate it, make whatever changes they have to just to just tie it all together. It's sort of like, I mean, huh. when when I was a young embedded guy, we had to write everything ourselves. If we wanted to do floating point yeah. multiplies, we had to write a floating point library in assembly language. Jeez. Today, of course, you get all that stuff for free. You know, it's part of the compiler. How are you still? I would never stay in the business. <laughs> Miserable. <laughs> kind of amazing. But it's, maybe it's the same as just having to write segway readers over and over again like we do in geophysics. <laughs> well, I'm t I'm t so I, I really, I mean, I, a, neural, a neural network is such a simple thing. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, you just have to get the weights in there. <clears throat> this is for the Ford Pass, anyway. Um, so it seems like there's, you know, that I okay. I promise our audience that by tomorrow, I will have at least fired up one of these FPGA instances and checked to see if Amazon has an AMI or something like that that you can load in network weights. Because it seems like all you need is the weights. Oh God! Wait, actually, this is. Well, I don't know how you implement your neural networks, but uh, if I were doing it on an FPGA, I would not use floating point. I'd do everything in integer or fixed point, uh, mm -hmm. because floating point has a, it takes a lot, awful lot of resources to do. Um, if you want, I'm sure I've, I'm sure I've got a Xilinx zinc board around here. I'll send it down to you. <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to take it out of the box. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I think TPUs use like half width. Floating points. Yes, they do. Yeah, and, uh, and GPUs do too. Okay. Know, GPUs often do sixteen-bit floats. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's the the Nvidia's Volta's claim to fame on their one hundred and twenty-five teraflop processing. What you call it? Okay. And I don't know what any of those words mean that I just said, but I do know <laughs> that, that it makes are. a huge difference in speed because I did I did port of TensorFlow implementation of some little network over there. It was, it was amazing. I think I mentioned that on the show before. Well, think about uh, why we use floating point. There's really, really the, the biggest reasons are so we can express numbers over a wide, very wide dynamic range. Yeah. Uh, and so that we can set a uh, decimal point wherever, wherever we would care to do it. Yeah. And a ton of problems don't need that. Yeah. You know, there's an awful lot of things like we can do Right, routines to calculate sines, and cosines, uh, with just 16-bit integer arithmetic. I mean, you're not going to get the huge range, and you're not going to get the uh, huge amount of precision. But a lot of problems don't need it. And th the reason the GPUs do this is because it's just a video image. How good does it have to be? You know. Uh, so anytime you can take a problem, whether it's running on a computer or a, a GPU or a, a PGA, and reduce it to an integer, you get enormous speed improvements. I just, I mean, many orders of magnitude. And there's an in-between thing called fixed point, which allows you to actually have a binary point. It gives you a bigger dynamic range than you get with an integer. But with fixed point, the calculations are all integer calculations, so they're very, very fast. This doesn't give you the same kind of dynamic range that you get with a float. But uh, you know, in engineering, there's always a trade-off. You have to decide what, what you need. Yeah, and right. you guys are... Scientists, I'm an engineer. That's one of the things that differenti differentiates us. I, I'm very interested by this. I want to, when, when I first started to understand what a neural network was, it just seemed to me like hardware design would be a, is sort of a natural extension of the process, right? I mean, like dropping memory locations inside of a, flow of information is basically like adding a dropout layer in your neural network. Um, it's highly parallel, and processors are crummy at doing highly parallel. Yeah. Well, I'll look into it, audience, and I will <laughs> tell you what my failings were like. <laughs> so I have, I, have a quick, uh, I have a quick question. Well, yeah, I'll try and keep it quick. But I have a question that I really want to ask Jack before. Well, I've actually multiple. OK, there's lots of questions that I really want to ask. What one is about? Um, the Gable uncertainty principle, but maybe we can have him back sometime to talk about that because I'd really, I'd really like to go into that because I've never had a proper 
E E to talk to about that. And I've got questions. But the other one, uh, which is more in line with what we've been talking about this evening, is um, quantum computing. And how much attention should ordinary people, but let's say computational scientists, be paying to that? Or is it still just a curiosity for the next decade? Well, in my opinion, I think there's an awful lot of quantum computing research that's going on that's not in the public domain. I think if we could open up uh, the lid on Google, we'd find a lot of work going on there that they don't want us to hear about. And you know, I live in Maryland. There's only one business in Maryland, you know, the spy biz. And I'm sure that they're working very hard on it. The stuff that is public and publicly knowledgeable about it, that you can get info about, uh, suggests that it's still really in its infancy. Um, but I don't see any reason why it, it, it's not going to work. And for a long time, I was afraid of it because uh, I don't know quantum mechanics all that well, just enough to do semiconductor physics. And uh, But then I realized there's going to be an API. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be easy to use when, or easy enough to use when it finally comes on a uh, mainstream. Yeah, you only have to write one million lines of Verilog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Okay, so um, so you're saying it should work out, like it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be exciting. There's more work that's going on that we don't get to sort of hear about. Uh, you think it's a big area of research in these big companies? I think I think it's huge because all of cryptography is going to collapse once. Uh, uh, quantum computing comes out, and that's that's sort of catastrophic for. I mean, you just have to think about the kinds of businesses that will be affected by that. It's going to be huge. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think it'll probably take longer than we understand. It's a very difficult problem, but I have no doubt that that's going to become important. Mm. Interesting. All right. Cool. Well, uh, maybe we can have another in-depth chat about that someday. Okay. <laughs> So before we go, we're going to do the standard question we ask all our guests. What are you reading at the moment? Oh, wow. Well, actually, I, I always have several books going at a time. There's a brand new book called The Second World Wars by Victor Davis Hanson. Second World Wars, plural. It's a very unusual book. It, instead of following a sort of a narrative arc over time, it focuses on different aspects of the war. And in it, he said that, uh, and I'm only halfway through it, but he said that we've built in five years a third of a million airplanes in this country. And that got me interested in the industrial capacity. How do you do that? So I also read um, a book just while I was reading this one called Freedom's Forge, and another one called The American Aircraft Industry in the Second World War, which gave a lot of insight into how they did it. And I mean, it is, it's, it's just remarkable when you consider uh, the B-29. They started work on that in 1941, and by 1944 they had produced 5,000. And uh, today we have the F-35, which we started on 25 years ago. And they've only delivered like a couple of hundred and they don't work. <laughs> so it's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm reading a book that you sent me um, for Christmas, very generously, called, uh, and who is reading, because it was someone, one of our guests was reading it. Yes. It was... Uh... Uh, please. Um, just pulling up the list. Hal, Hal yeah. Albert. Yep, you're right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's called Algorithms Illuminated. I was just looking up the author because I couldn't remember his name. It's kind of a cool name. Um, Tim. Somebody. Somebody. Roughgarden. Tim Roughgarden, who's a professor at Stanford, uh, teaches an algorithms course and has taught this algorithms course multiple times. Uh, so you can tell it's quite honed material, and it's got a nice sort of didactic style. Like it's very conversational. It's very kind of clearly knows what kind of questions people ask at certain points in the material. You know, and yeah, parts are the same thing. Yeah, it's so very nicely laid out. Um, you know, classic kind of mathematics, LaTeX uh, sort of style. It's got it's got it's a bit more mathy than I'm used to. It's got lemmas and theorems and and so on. Um, but you know, he takes the time to explain. Like, here's what I mean by a lemma, and uh, you know, here, and there are little. What does he mean? Are those are the things that jump off the cliff after each other. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. 
um, little quiz questions with answers and stuff like that. So yeah, it's good. I'm, I'm only like halfway through the first proper chapter, so we'll see how I feel about it in a couple of weeks. Um, but enjoying it so far. Recommended. Awesome. My notes, the, the show notes say that I'm working on South and West by Joan Didion, but that, I wrote these a while back and I'm finished and I honestly was a bit disappointed. I didn't realize, man, I, have re I, I also, I had the bar set very, very high for this book. Yeah, you, you did really put it up there. And it turns out that it really just is a collection of her notes. Now, her notes are written more eloquently than most Pulitzer winners, but it still is kind of a little rough for her work, and I, I stumbled a bit on it. So <sighs> anyway, I'm working on a, a, a History of Texas book right now called uh, something. I don't know. It's not sitting next to me. Texas a History? No, it's called like Lone Star something. Okay. Okay, I'll put it on the I'll put it on the show notes next week. Uh, but I figured since I moved to Texas, I should know something about Texas. So. Totally. There you have it. Very nice. Um, hey, Matt. <laughs> Here we go. You ready? Okay. What's the difference between memory and CPU? Oh no! Come on, we just went over this. This is an easy one. <laughs> A little-known fact that you could actually do computation with just memory, Graham. And we're out. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Understandable Radio. Dad, Jack Ganzel, thank you for joining us for what is hopefully only one of many, many conversations we have on the show. Thanks, guys. A lot, it was a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks, Jack. See you next week. Cheers.